Hi guys, Paul from the Innovation Community here. Today I'm with Jason Krantz. Now, with over 10 years of, of business analytics, data science, leadership, strategy, pretty much everything data experience in, in both the public and private equity uh, owned businesses, he's, he's a pretty big force to be reckoned with within the analytics world. Great to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Happy 2021 to you. Yeah, likewise. And for those who have been living under a rock for the last, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so, tell us a bit about yourself in a few words. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, my, my focus is really helping companies get the most out of their data and analytics initiatives. And really the way that I look at that is bringing clarity as to how these types of initiatives can actually drive tangible business results. I know that sounds kind of buzzwordy and fill, uh, you know, filled with a lot of um, you know, IBM speak, for lack of a better word, but kind of how I got there is I came up through the, um, the data ranks, right? Data engineering, really hardcore technical for the early parts of my careers. I have no regrets about that. But what I very quickly realized is that as I started to move up into managerial ranks and just trying to drive change within organizations, it became exceedingly difficult to do at a scale that was actually going to move the needle. And that was when I made the decision to pivot from a technical focus to a very heavy business focus. So uh, I started to have a lot more success with that. And I saw that you can actually start driving actual real financial results um, using data and analytics because people would start to listen to you because you were speaking their language. It wasn't all this technical mumbo jumbo, which to us in the data community, it makes perfect sense. It makes a lot of sense. But um, one of the things you'll hear me talk about a lot about today is customer centricity. That's both an internal perspective and an external perspective. And so rather than focusing on tools, technology, let's focus on what the business or the customer needs or is trying to accomplish. Let's help them do that because most people, as I say all the time, they don't care how the flux capacitor works. They just want to achieve A, B, or C. And that's really what we're here to do is help them do that. And, and I'm sure we'll get into the, the nuances of that, but that's a great analogy to start with. So where did your career working with analytics begin? Yeah, so actually I discovered it by accident. Uh, back in the day, I used to do uh, SAP implementations. We used to do like BI and I was part of the BI team. And what we found is like, hey, you're young, you're good with, you know, uh, Excel and numbers. Why don't you go and be part of this project? And so I remember my first job, I was three months out of college and they had a big executive meeting coming up and I had made some, uh, just getting in and looking at the data, basic Excel stuff, nothing fancy at all. Um, I had made some uh, discoveries about opportunities, cost-saving opportunities in the supply chain. They were quite significant, seven figures. Um, I, again, I was employing fundamental techniques, nothing advanced, anybody with a year could do it. Uh, but these were breakthroughs because nobody had applied to any kind of analytic rigor at all um, in terms of going into new information. They all looked at kind of the standard queue of financial information and all this stuff. And so with SAP and all this access to new information that we had, I started bringing that out, made the discovery. Long story short, I went into this executive meeting. They invited me in, mind you, I'm three months out of school, and I'm still figuring out where the bathroom's at. And they're like, we want you to come into this meeting and present your findings. I'm, I'm scared to death. I'm petrified because, how do, you know, you're yelling. How do you know that what you're talking about actually makes any sense? Everybody's been there. And so I go in there, and I start talking about what I found and what I observed. Fortune 500 company, I had all these executives listening to what I was saying. And it was at that moment, it just, it clicked that there might be something here and that something so basic, that's not to say it in a, in a negative way, but it was really basic stuff that nobody had ever done before. And that's when I started to realize 
maybe there's power in this data stuff. And that's where I kind of started going down the path. I started to learn more advanced Excel skills. I got into VBA, eventually got into SQL. And then, you know, so you start with this little hub, and then you start to bolt on the little modules to build out that technical skill set. But then, um, as I said before, without stealing the thunder of some of our future questions, is that I soon realized there's a limit. You can have all this technical skill, but you need those executives, you need those people to listen. In order to listen, you have to bring things to the table that resonate with them. Technical doesn't resonate. And that example is I found out in my career, it's financials. Financials for most for-profit entities and even nonprofits. That's what connects and being a finance person uh, kind of by trade, that's what I, I got my undergrad in portfolio management and finance. I wanted to go into investment banking. Um, I have a very financial lens on things. And so that's the way that I look at things. And it just so happened that I discovered early in my career, that's also what resonates with a lot of executives. So it was kind of a, an accidental discovery, if you will. And then it was realizing that, wow, maybe there's something here. Uh, let's see where we can go with this. And that was a long time ago. What are you up to in your current role? Yeah, so in our current role, actually, it's, it's I have uh, my own company, Strategy Titan. Uh, we do a lot of different things, but the core of it is really kind of that same playbook. It's helping companies get the most out of their data and analytics initiatives, but doing it in a way that actually moves the financial and strategic needle. And a lot of times when I go in to talk to business leaders, you know, I ask them, there's a, there's a basic playbook I use where it's, if you could answer any five questions about your business, what would it be? And a lot of times it's market related. What's the market growing at? What's, you know, what are, what's our competition doing? All these things, because it, within the four walls, they feel like they've got a pretty good dial on it, um, which I challenge that notion a lot, because a lot of times some of the best gems are actually hidden within your four walls. If they're already within your data. Um, but so as we go to these, you know, ask these questions, we realize that, uh, okay, it's about the same 10 questions every single time. It's, you know, what is my market doing? All that other stuff, revenue generators. And then we say, okay, those are the questions that if you could answer those, you'd be, it'd be brilliant. What data would we need to answer those questions? And then, so as we kind of go through it, we get agreement that yes, we would need A, B, and C. Okay, great. Now out of the data that you would need to answer those most critical questions, what data do you already have? And as we start to peel back the layers on this, we discover that a lot of times they already have a majority of the data that they need to answer their most pressing questions. They just never have leveraged it. They never looked at it that way. Never kind of started with the end in mind saying, well, what do we got? Or what can we go get? What's a proxy for it? And a lot of times what I see a lot of companies get stuck with is they think they need everything. They got to have all the information. There's a famous uh, Jeff Bezos quote where he basically says, if you're waiting to get 100% of the information that you need to make a decision, you're moving too slow. And so I, I reference this quote because I'm like, hey, don't listen to me. Listen to Jeff. Jeff knows a couple of things. And so what we're saying is that you don't need all the information. You get 70% of it. You're going to be in great shape. So if we need 70%, how much of that do we think we've got? And most of the time, you're around that 80% mark. You say, so we've got our question. We've got the impact of it. We know what data we need. We have it. And that's where we say, okay, now we've created clarity around how can data and analytics directly help answer your most pressing questions. But notice, we didn't start with the technical. We started at the other end. We started with the question. We started with the, the agenda of the executive to ask them, what are you trying to do? And then by having the clarity on that, you can move backwards. 
Because now what you're doing is you're walking through a logical progression. There's no jumps. We get agreement on every step along the way. Then we say, okay, I'll give you an example. Real world example, because I, I love anchoring the idea in real examples to prove that it works in multiple fronts. There's a company we were working with. Um, they had a very large, very large revenue and more importantly, EBITDA percent expansion goal, right? Really EBITDA percent growth, the engine. So said, okay, what are your ways of doing that? A couple ways that you can do that. You can bring on, you can keep your current customer mix and expand your revenue, uh, you know, expand your business to bring on more revenue with a better margin profile. Okay, but that's CapEx. So it's very CapEx intensive industry, not optimal. So what we challenge is to say, okay, another option is to look at cost reduction, which is typical, whatever. But then I challenge them to the first one that I always go to is pricing. Okay, what have you done to kind of rationalize your current customer mix or look at your current pricing model and its effectiveness and all these things? Like, well, we haven't really done that before. Okay, so let's take a look at that. So anyway, long story short, we go in and uh, about half of this business was kind of made to order custom. But they had all this quote data. So I go, have you ever analyzed the quote data? to see what's winning and what's losing because you can extract out a lot of pricing insights from this quote data. And they're like, we have never looked at that before. And I go, okay, let's do this. Let's start our pilot project with that. And we, you know, we made a real low friction. We got the project going. And then as we bring it back here, you say, I I'm going to make up fictional numbers. You had a $10 million EBITDA growth target. We have identified $6 million in virtually zero risk. Yeah, there's always risk, but you know, if the market will support this and you're charging here, that's a pretty low risk delta, especially if you're doing a highly engineered product, whatever it may be, which these guys work. So you can go get six million bucks, virtually risk-free, again, in theory, um, to cover that gap. Not only that, we also discovered that your pricing model is not accounting for a freight recovery component. So you're hemorrhaging freight out this side. That's another $4 million. So right there, we've got $10 million, your bogey, Ten million dollars, and that's just that's just the stuff we looked at to start with. It clicks. Then they're like, then they start saying how the data translates into solving a tangible problem, and it's not it's not you know ponies and unicorns. It's real financial impact. Now there's a lot of work that goes into that. I'm not going to say that you know analytics can solve kind of those downstream challenges, but what it does is it articulates the opportunity. As the analogy I like to use is that. If you're going fishing, analytics and data can tell you if you want to catch pike, here's where you go. Here's the coordinates. You put this lure on, you use this bait, you drop it down 50 feet, you wait five minutes, you're probably going to catch something, right? So what it does is it creates clarity so that you can get the business aligned around the opportunity and then work with them to start working towards implementation because that's where the magic happened. If data and analytics by itself will not take advantage of those opportunities they highlight them but you need to corral people around the idea and when you can tie it to financials which are usually related to objectives you can motivate people to listen to you because now you're a business partner now you're trying to help them succeed now it's not about you and all the magic that you can do it's about how you can help companies and so now to bring it back to your question that's those stories are an example of the process that we use and what we do to help bring real tangible business value to a business. And that's one of the things that we feel is a huge differentiator. There's a lot of very good analytics organizations out there, but a lot of them that we've seen struggle to, 
to get that last mile to get people on board to actually take action that moves the needle. Yeah, that's a fantastic case study as well. I mean, you come across it and we've probably touched on it, but what really interests you about working in this space today? Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's showing people what's possible. It, it's, it's, it's helping them achieve their goals and objectives because a lot of the companies that we work with, they tend to be in industries that are, for lack of a better word, and it's not a derogatory term at all, but they're laggards, you know, like manufacturing is extremely good within their four walls in certain ways. But, you know, most manufacturing firms that we talk to in terms of sales analytics or price management or whatever it is, they tend to lag. Um, and so for us, what I love, what my team loves is the idea that a lot of the objectives for most companies, they've kind of fallen into the same general buckets, right? It's, it's revenue, it's share growth, it's EBITDA expansion, margin expansion, a couple of different variations of that, but they all come to kind of the same general theme. And so the thing that gets me excited is knowing that they probably aren't considering some of the most powerful levers, strategic levers that they've got to pull, aren't being pulled because they're not even aware. It's not through lack of smarts. These are exceptionally smart people. But they just, sometimes you've been in that business so long, you kind of become blind, right? It's almost like a bias um, when you're looking at something. I, I know I do it all the time. I ask for fresh perspectives on things because I go, I know I'm missing something. I don't know what it is because you're so close to it on a day in, day out basis. And so it's knowing that for a majority of these companies, we can help them directly achieve their objectives because, you know, as I alluded to before, we're really strategists first. You know, like myself, I take a general management and a CEO-esque approach to things. And data and analytics just happen to be the tools that we use to identify the opportunities. And so, you know, as we look at this, it's, it's, what's exciting is that knowing that if somebody's got a revenue growth target or an EBITDA growth target or whatever it is, there's a playbook of things that we can go to that we know work because I myself have led these initiatives, you know, when I was doing, working for corporations, we made a lot of people a lot of money, like a lot of money. And the thing is, is that these playbooks have a high degree of transferability across industries company sizes. I mean, really all these different dimensions, they work because they're business basics, right? It's not about analytics and the data, they're business basics. And then the data and analytics just helps accelerate that process and to make them work. But I mean, pricing, pricing is the one that I go to every time. Virtually every company on this planet has some form of pricing. Uh, how complex or how simple it is, is, you know, unique to the company. But a lot of companies um, have very archaic price management process and, and things around that. And we're not saying that all of them are bad, but a lot of them, there's improvement opportunities around there. And sometimes it takes that outside perspective to kind of point these things out, not in a negative sense, but say, listen, I want to help you get better. Here's some things that we see. And we say it from a place of love, of, of wanting to see them succeed. And that's for me, again, that's that really exciting part is to take somebody who, who is kind of a non-believer, like, oh, I've already explored that. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't need that. And to open their eyes to it, not like a ha ha, I told you so, to be like, listen, man, you're going to crush it with this. Like, just, you know, like, here's the opportunity. And then once they see it, then, then, then they're in. And then, because that's the part, once they discover it, once they see it, then they're going to commit to it. And as you know, you know, Gartner has a, has a report out there where a vast majority of data and analytics uh, initiatives fail. Some people will debate those metrics, but let's just work from that thesis of that a majority of them fail to achieve kind of their theoretical benefits. 
a lot of that comes down to because, in my opinion, you have something with great potential, but it doesn't get implemented because the leadership teams or whoever it is don't believe in it or they don't see how it helps achieve those objectives. And so that's why everything we've talked to up to here is focused on helping those people see the objectives and what could be the future state. Because once they make that connection, that, then they start using analytics and its true power to drive change. So another question then, how would you go about engaging, communicating a senior leadership team as, as, uh, as some of these laggard companies as you, as you would describe them as? Yeah, absolutely. I like to start with, um, you know, where are you at and where do you want to go? Um, it's as simple as that. And then the question becomes, okay, you're here, you want to get here, how? How are you going to get there? I think it's relevant for anybody, the individual, a corporation, a company, whatever it is, nonprofit. And a lot of times what, what I've learned over time to sense out is how much of it are they using kind of for the, the traditional playbook that they've been accustomed to versus maybe considering new ideas. And that's where this is, this is the soft skills part. This is where you just, you learn over reps and really through, you know, early in my career, I, I, I messed up a lot of this, right? That's, that's experience, right? You, you learn what does work and what doesn't work. And so it's learning to kind of feather that conversation because when you're talking to business leaders, a lot of times too, this is something that doesn't get discussed a lot, but there's a lot of ego involved, especially if it's a family owned business or something like that. It's like, this is our baby, you know? You know, the, the, the analogy is it's like if somebody tells you that your kid maybe isn't good at his ABCs, right? You have to feather that conversation very delicately. And that's where knowing what are the common kind of pain points for a company like that, you learn how to appropriately phrase that, that question. Because the goal is, in my mind, we want the person to get to that realization on their own. We don't want to tell them that. We want to lead them along the way. But we don't want to tell them what they need to change. So that's where the line of questioning is extremely important. Because if you just come out and tell them, you're going to run into a brick wall pretty quick. I know because I've done it a lot. Uh, and that's where I learned that, you know, you that, that line of questioning and that five question model is extremely effective because it's a framework to help start the conversation. As I said before, a lot of times you are very smart people. And as you start asking those questions, they're going to come to these realizations on their own. Um, so, so one of the things I wanted to mention, because I think it's really important, is, is, as you can probably surmise, is that a lot of this is soft skill based, communication based, right? It's not, it's not about, I haven't talked a ton about the technical components of data and analytics and in, in my view, success with it. And I think that's important because so many times we get hung up on the technical side of this. And that really success in my mind is made in having these hard conversations and persuading people, getting them to see things differently, considering different perspectives, right? That's, that's hard work. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, at the end of this, people take away is that like, again, I don't have all the answers, but I've, I've been at this quite a while and I've learned what does and doesn't work. And that change is hard, change is very difficult. And so, Having these conversations and getting clarity on these things up front is really important because if you go down this path of doing all this technical investment and all these things that are really actually very good, but you don't start with kind of that buy-in, you're, again, to use the analogy, you're going to run into a brick wall pretty quickly and you're going to contribute to kind of that project failure. Um, you know, it's the last mile. It's the last mile of analytics of getting people to use the things 
uh, that you've created because a lot of times they, they can be game changing if you just get people to buy into the program. So with, with that in mind, how would you describe your own leadership style when, when approaching that? Yeah. So, um, I'm a results driven guy. I, I really don't have much tolerance for, you know, fluff is, you know, you're, you're trying to achieve something. How are you going to get there? Obviously at all times you can't just run straight at the target. Um, but I, I like very direct conversations. Uh, I appreciate it myself um, because it creates clarity in my mind. It's about clarity on what we need to do <clears throat> to move the ball forward. Um, so, you know, I let people know this. If you follow me for any amount of time on LinkedIn, I think you know this or anybody who's listening this knows this. Um, I don't say it to be brash. I don't say it to, you know, kind of be a jerk. That's not my intent at all. It's actually the opposite. <clears throat> Where it's, um, for lack of a better word, it can be a tough a form of tough love. But you can spend months kind of just dilly-dallying around these topics. Where if you, if you position them accordingly and have the hard conversations, you can get straight down to business. You can get down to doing the things that need to be done because, you know, time is money. And, you know, like part of this is born from uh, growing up in a private equity world, uh, which was extremely aggressive, very, very, very aggressive. You have very short time horizons, you know, an ownership cycle could be two years. You don't have time to mess around. And I think for me, that's really where this philosophy crystallized, where we had a bunch of really smart people running very fast, very hard. We didn't have time to say, well, let's think about this in maybe three months. It's like, nope, we're going, we're doing this. And you would do your due diligence. So it was, we have an idea, do your due diligence, make a decision, and then move. So it wasn't like, well, we need to get this data, getting back to the 70% example. When we got to 80%, we, got, we, we have enough information to make an informed decision. Sure, the additional 20% will give us more confidence, perhaps, but it doesn't fundamentally change our decision of we're going down this path, right? And so for me, I think for uh, working in that environment, uh, because before that environment, I wasn't really like that. I was more of the, hey, well, let's see. Like, you know, the thing was, is that I realized is that it, it causes a certain amount of focus. You don't have time to screw around. And for a lot of leaders, uh, you know, they have, you know, if they're publicly traded and have quarterly earnings to go after or they're big and change takes time, you need to start acting quickly. That's not to say it's reckless. You don't want to be reckless, but you want to do the due diligence up front, make that decision and then move. And in my mind, that whole process starts with clarity on what you're trying to do, what you're trying to do is a result of having clarity on where you're trying to go. And sometimes you need to have those hard conversations with people in order to break through, right? Like one of the best guys I ever worked with, this guy is brilliant. I love the guy, his name is David Wathier. Him and I would fight like cats and dogs, but we fought with the intent. Like I was, you know, I was coming at it from one side, he was a sales channel, you know, ops guy uh, at times and we would collide, but we collided from a spirit of trying to find the best possible solution. It wasn't fighting like I'm right, no, you're right. No, it was like, listen, we both want to fight, find a great solution here. We're going to fight. But, it, but we argued with respect, right? And this is, this is where in talking with executives, it's, it's setting that thing like, listen, this is your business. You are the master of it. My job is, the reason why you're here with my team is to challenge you to ascend to that next level. Like we, like we like to work with good businesses that want to move to great. 
That's hard. That's painful. You need to have hard conversations. And so with that, that's what I tell them. I said, listen, I'm going I'm to disagree with you. I'm going to challenge you. But understand it is from a perspective of trying to help you achieve your objectives and to break through to that next level is very hard. I've seen it with a lot of companies. Most aren't really willing to do the work that is needed to ascend to that next level. But if you do it, you greatly improve your probability of getting to that. And again, to be clear, that's not to say that what we recommend or what we do is always, it's not a panacea. But again, we're getting to the probability game. You're increasing the chances of you just crushing that ceiling and ascending to that next level. And the great thing is, is again, getting back to having lived it myself for years, the things that we recommend, they, they tend to be pretty reliable playbooks where people can look at them and be like, yep, I can see how this gets us from here to here. So very direct communication. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that the way you're communicating now is, is making it really easy for people to digest what you're saying. So with that in mind, what are some of the, the real life success stories that you've seen over your career? Yeah, the, the ones that I always come back to are always pricing related, um, just because they, they can be, it's the most powerful profit lever you have to pull in a business. And most businesses, this, this is just my take, most businesses aren't terribly disciplined. Uh, now, obviously, in Amazon, or Google, any of those, anything pricing related, they're born with kind of that in their DNA. But 99.9% .9 of businesses don't fall under that umbrella, right? So we're looking at the majority. We're not looking at the outliers. In most businesses, let's take manufacturing for as an example. Manufacturing, I th I'm a little rusty on my numbers, but I think it's like 550, 600,000 manufacturers exist just within the United States. A vast majority of those are less than 100 employees, small businesses, right? Um, a lot of times, you got a lot of people playing a lot of positions, and you know they they get they get caught into this they get caught into this and using manufacturing example a lot of times it's operationally focused where it's within the four walls they might not have the time expertise or resources to go and kind of look at hey we haven't changed our pricing model in 20 years and i know that sounds ridiculous the company i just came from they had the same pricing model for essentially 30 years um it hadn't really changed much and it's one of those things where what happens over time is you get you know one percent out of whack and then it gets a little bit more and it compounds and it compounds and it compounds. Before you know it, you got this huge spread potentially. Um, and, and the thing is, is if you're in an industry with a lot of M&A activity, right? We, we, I can't name names, but we, I worked for a company where, um, you know, a company was $250 million a year they bought from us. And they acquired a company that did like $2 million a year. And on their biggest running skew, just through sheer accident, this company had a lower price than the, the behemoth. So they look at it and they're like, what are you guys doing? What else are you, you know, you know what else are you uh, giving us a hard time on? And so uh, it represents exposure. I, I look at it as it's a risk mitigation strategy in, in, in addition to kind of a margin expansion and a revenue expansion. So, you know, kind of the real world examples, what I shared with you there is one, there was another company uh, I worked for where we had very lofty operating profit expansion uh, targets. And we took our, you know, we went through a lot of M&A work. Uh, we had a blended portfolio, uh, average OP of, I think it was like seven or 8%, if I remember right. It's, it's been a number of years. And then uh, through a number of uh, cost out opportunities, but primarily through pricing, uh, pricing diligence and customer rationalization, um, we, uh, we took the blended average up to, what was that? I think it was 23%. And to put a concrete, like to just 
this kind of kicked off with something uh, I had I discovered by accident. Again, I was new. I had been hired to start up this analytics team, Greenfield. And they're like, all right, well, just kind of look at stuff and tell us what you see. And again, coming from the kind of the, the finance mindset, I go, I want to look at what's the total cost of serve for our complete portfolio of customers. And so there was this one customer I was looking at. They did like $10 million a year on just a gross margin level. They had like negative, I think it was two and a half million dollars. So I thought it's, it must have made an error somewhere. So I go through, I look, there's no error. So now what we're looking at is, wow, we've got a customer that we thought was really profitable that's actually terrible. Like literally, if we fire them today, we will make two and a half million dollars. You know, it's a theoretical exercise. Not only that, you open up capacity for a more profitable customer because we were at capacity constraints. We had to go out and buy new machines, CapEx, to bring on new capacity. So you've got that spend. So what we're saying is, well, why would we do that? Why don't we just rationalize our current customer base? And that was kind of, um, that was the first one where management's like, there's no way that's possible. I go, listen, this is what I see you guys go through and do your own. And they're like, holy cow, this, this is real. Who else is like this? And then we discovered we had like tens of millions of dollars in just bad, bad business out there. But it started, again, getting back to, it started with identifying the opportunity using analytics and the data we had available. And then because at that time, you know, we were working very closely with sales, we coordinated with the sales team to say, sales, you have revenue and margin expansion goals. These are things that you can do today to not risk your sales incentive plan, your ability to get paid, and it will also help you achieve uh, your growth goals. So again, this is the implementation side. In that example, sales was the implementer. All we could do was identify the opportunity. We had to make a case to sales and the management team to say, guys, this is what we think can happen. You have an objective to grow revenue and grow margin. Here's who we see as opportunities to rationalize pricing and or for lack of a better word with management consent, fire, right? Because we actually did do that. We said, management's like, we're not gonna punish you for this loss of business because it's strategically important. But it was quarterbacking that effort and working with the business, working with sales to say, here's why it makes sense, right? Because if you put yourself in the position of the salesperson, if you want me to walk away from revenue, there's no way I'm doing that. So we had to coordinate with a lot of different people to get everybody on the same page and saying, listen, we all have the same goal of revenue and margin growth. This is a way to get there. And, you know, again, it, you, we walked through, uh, those, are, those are a couple of real examples of ways that, again, getting back to the theme of identifying opportunities, getting everybody coordinated around it so that we can move together as a unified front because what could have happened is we go to the sales force and we say, and we didn't, we don't, you know, pre-align with the management team and get everybody on board with this. And they're like, yeah, that's great. Thanks. I'll take that and do nothing with it. Bye. Right now, now there's nothing, there's nothing to show for it. We haven't tangibly moved the needle at all. And the reason why I share those stories is because when it comes down to it, the business was the one sales was the one in that example that implemented, they got And I hate this word, but they got the credit for it. It showed up in their results. Like they drove it, but they look at us and they're like, you're the one that gave us that. You're the one that told us where to go fish. You told us that the opportunity was there. Not only that, you gave us the support 
to sell the idea with confidence, like on price increases, this is immensely important. They need to believe that the price increase that they're selling actually makes sense, that they're not ripping people off. And if, and, and uh, having doing sales now, I can completely empathize with that. But it's one of those where you've got to, again, it gets back to the theme you're going to hear me say over and over, you've got to get them to buy into the program. Buying into the program necessitates that you think about their world. It's not about you. It's not about your tools. It's not about all the magic that you can do or your algorithms or whatever. Nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about the flux capacitor. They care about how you help them do their job better. And those stories, I think, start to illustrate. I mean, I've got, I'm actually preparing to write a book on this. Uh, we've got so many stories that we can share. But the, the, the theme is the same. The playbook's the same. It's the same idea in that we, we never focus on the data and analytics. They're just, they're just the means to an end. That's, that's a uh, fantastic stuff. I mean, we, we've mentioned a lot about the, the ways you've helped organizations. What do you think was the biggest mistake you made during your career? Oh yeah. Uh, I, it was unquestionably thinking that the stuff is self-apparent. Well, how, how can you not see the value of this? Right. Oh, the savings are right there. Or why wouldn't you do this? Right. Early in my career is unquestionably, it was the, for lack of a better word, it was arrogance, um, immaturity, uh, lack of experience, working in just my world of uh, the technical world where it's like, you know, we, we have a habit of doing that. And I say we, because I still work with a lot of people that you get insulated in this world of uh, the technical realm. And this is all great stuff and great, great. Okay, great. It wasn't until I started to try to sell these ideas because that's what we're doing. We're selling ideas. We're selling change, right? Anytime that we're bringing this stuff out, at least in my world, we're selling change. Change is really hard. Change, people resist change. It's human. It's, it's ingrained in us. We don't like change. So even though it might be the most obvious thing in the world, people don't like change. And, and one of the examples that I use has nothing to do with business. Um, you know, one of my friends, uh, uh, his father had a massive heart attack. Doctor goes, you need to change X, Y, and Z if you want to live for another five years. If you do that, you can probably live a pretty good life. If you don't, you're probably going to be dead. Guy refused to change. Even though he knew the result of not changing is death, he chose to not do it. And, you know, the thing is, is, you know, it, unfortunately he did pass. I don't, again, I share the story. I asked with permission to share the story because it's like sometimes people are just so resistant to change in that we need to help facilitate that process. My, my idea is that we are facilitators of change. Data and analytics opportunity identification is one side. Knowing what people's objectives and goals and what they're trying to accomplish, their future state is the other side. So by knowing where they want to go and having these tools, we can then communicate about how what we do can help them drive change. Because if we don't, if we, if you just bum rush it, you just go up to them, you, you will fail. You will fail a majority of the time. And I say that because I did that. And fortunately, I learned, I had people coach me, mentor me. Actually, some of the most painful learning experiences I had were pretty direct shots to the uh, ego. Um, but you learn and you evolve that that approach doesn't work. And so I'd say for me, early in my career, that was one of the, the best learning experiences. It was also one of the most painful. Because, um, you know, sometimes learning those things is not fun. 
uh, but I'm thankful for him, you know? I completely get it. And, and it's on a massive, on a bigger scale, it's, it is, can be make or break some organizations. So I think that's uh, a sad, but, but, uh, you know, value add analogy to use as well. What do you think the best piece of advice you ever received was? Got a lot. I would say, <laughs> sounds ridiculous, but um, much like the story I just articulated, when you think you know everything, you probably know nothing. And so it gets the idea that uh, always be growing is the idea, right? Always be growing. And as I've grown and matured, I've realized that there are things that I know very well. There are things that my team and I are exceptionally good at. But we're also realizing that there's an ungodly amount to learn and that we're never going to know everything. And that's a big reason why um, it's very liberating to come to that realization. Younger, uh, younger me would always feel the pressure to have to know everything. You know, you get in a room with an executive team and you feel like you've got to know A, B, or C. If they ask you a question, you say, I don't know. You feel like an idiot. Me now realizes, listen, there's a lot of stuff I know. and My team and I are very good at. As I said before, there's stuff we don't know. And if I don't know, I just say, I don't know. But you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to go research that. I don't know. Or I know somebody who does know that, right? That's one of the things that we do at Strategy Titan, you know, we, we're, we can do a lot of data engineering and all that stuff, but that's not what we're best at. So we have partners that we work with on that. And the reason why I share that story is because in life, I have partners that I work with as, as I, you know, like data literacy. I know a pretty decent amount about it, but I'm by no means an expert. You know, it's one of the reasons why I love talking to Jordan Morrow, my buddy, who I have the podcast with. He's an expert in it. So I have questions. I go to him for advice. I'm like, Jordan, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about it? Because getting that theme of having an outsider's perspective, sometimes when you're just working in your own head, you, you can get in your own way. You can, you can restrict your growth. You can really put a governor on yourself and not even know it. That's the dangerous part. You can think you're doing all of these things, but you're actually you know, retarding your growth. And that's where having a network of people that you trust, that you can go to, that you can talk to, to stress test you. And this is the important part as I was talking about before, do it in the spirit of knowing that those people are going to give you hard things that maybe you don't want to hear, but they're doing it because they want to see you do better. I mean, again, Jordan, I go to Jordan all the time and he'll, he'll beat me up, but I know that he's doing it not to be a jerk, but to help me realize my potential and make those breakthroughs. And sometimes, as I said before, that requires hard conversations, but I embrace it because as I said before, I learned early on that my biggest breakthroughs came from the most painful experiences. And this is things that transcends just work. These are life lessons, I believe, you know, is that the things that really stink right now, I know for a lot of people that are listening, some might be going through hard times in whatever way, shape or form. You might look back in two or three years and realize that was actually the moment I needed to make that breakthrough from good to great, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the, the analytics world, let's say, what are you curious about right now? Yeah, I'm really curious on, you know, how we can get two, two things, really, how we can get the technical world to take a bit more of a business centric focus, right? Not as tool focused, um, kind of a lot of what I've talked to uh, up to this point has kind of been focused on that central theme, I think, of bridging the gap, right? I, I, I always look at it. A lot of people uh, will disagree with me on this, but 
I still see it as there's a lot of people who just they anchor themselves in the technical world. And they have virtually zero interest in going over to the business side. Then there's business people who are like, you guys don't talk my language. I don't understand that stuff. How do we, you know, how, how are we going to communicate? And this is where I'm a big believer, as you've, you've probably surmised here, communication is a very important piece of the success puzzle to me, right? Our differentiator, my personal differentiator is not my technical skills. I mean, we're good at them, but it's the communication, the ability to understand the problems, ask the questions, do those things, because that drives change. What I'm interested in, and we're actually getting ready to do our part to help facilitate this, is getting the technical side to think a bit more about how their work impacts the business, right? So let's think of it as a bridge. So they're coming in the middle. And then on the business side, with like data literacy and other initiatives, getting them to become more technically savvy so that they can better understand the value that the technical side is bringing to the table. Because that, that gap is real. Whether people want to admit it or not, that gap is very real in the majority of businesses. That is an extremely prevalent communication gap. I, I've seen it. I see it all the time. I see it day and night. And that's why the communication part is so important. So that's where what I'm curious about is how can we get those technical resources to come to the middle? And how can we get those business resources to come to the middle? And as I said before, these are things that in Q1 we are preparing to do our part to address because like anything else, I've talked about it a lot for years on LinkedIn. Um, it's to the point where we're actually going to do something about it. Um, conversations similar to this one that we're having. And, and that's a really good point because a lot of the, the technical side and the, the business side, let's call it, uh, a lot of that is down to communication. And yeah. a lot of that communication over the last you know, year or so has been stifled by COVID-19. So how do you think that, that we can get around this as an obstacle without the face-to-face, doing it over Zoom, over Teams, what have you? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I'm not going to pretend that it's, it's, it's easy. But the thing is, is, this is my bias. This is my view of the world, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, even before this, I'm not so sure that really being remote made that much of a difference because a major, there's a broad brushstroke, so I'll preface it with that. Most technical teams aren't interacting with the business anyway on a regular basis. So, so to the business, they're like, hey, it's business normal. You guys are doing whatever you do, right? Um, for the teams that I ran and, and what I did, we, we were literally side by side with the business every single day. Um, one of the ways that I have observed, one of the strategies I, I, I found immensely useful to get a program going, technical program of any kind, but really a lot of times because I was going in Greenfield Analytics team, I had, I had to convert people to make them realize this is a game changer and can help them do their jobs better. So my strategy was virtually always go to the biggest naysayer. Find the guy that has, or the gal that has zero interest. This is a complete sham. There's no way that this is going to work. And what I would do is I would sit down with them. I would introduce myself. And they tell me about your goals. What are you trying to do? Like, tell me about your objectives, whatever. They would go through things. And they go, I, what I would always say, I want to help you crush those goals. Here are some ideas on how we can do that, but I'm here for you. I want to see you succeed. And the thing is, I gen- this is a genuine philosophy of mine. Whoever we're working with, I want to see them succeed. Because they win, we win, right? Um, we have a job because we're here to help them. And so what I would do is say, white glove treatment, literally anything you need, I am here. My team is here. We're going to help you just crush it. 
So it usually starts with reporting and then it gets to a little bit more advanced stuff, making their life easier, taking their taking uh, time away from a kind of a mundane activity. We're saying, we're going to take care of this so you can focus on selling, right? For sales reps, a lot of times putting reports together and stuff like that. They can waste five, this guy was wasting six, seven hours a month putting together reports. What we're saying is, you know what we're going to do? We're, my team is going to focus on this exclusively for you. So you can get those six, seven hours to do whatever you want to do, prospecting, account checkups, you know, whatever it is, but selling, helping you hit your goals. The thing is, is after a while, he saw that we actually cared about his success. We actually wanted to see him succeed. Three months later, guys are big as advocate. These guys are the real deal. They actually want to help us. And the reason why that's a really important thing in my mind, it wasn't us telling people about how we can help them. We took what was known as the biggest naysayer and we converted them. So now everybody else is looking at it like, wow, that guy hated these guys three months ago. What are they doing? I'll listen. And then we have the opportunity. And then the thing is, is now what we do is we don't say, I don't want to tell you about what we did. Ask him. You guys probably have this problem. You probably have this problem. You probably have this problem. And then we're going to have, you know, Joe Blow or Jane Doe talk about it and how we help them. But then what it does is, this is so powerful, and this is the thing I think. So this is a huge opportunity for my technical you know, folk brethren. Develop great solutions, get somebody to use them, and have them do the testimonials for them. Have them tell people how great it is, because that's organic, that's grassroots, that's real, that drives change. And the thing is, is what you're going to realize too is that then you're developing solutions that actually matter to the business, because now. You started a conversation. You've developed trust. Now you can have hard conversations, you know? And that's the thing is the hard conversation to get back to that theme is based in trust. You've got to earn trust. And you earn trust by doing things in my, in my experience, in my life. And again, I'm not saying that works in all situations. There's situations where that probably would not work. But I have found is a remarkably useful playbook to earn trust organically and quite quickly because when I go in and start an analytics team, I didn't have the luxury of 18 months of building out all these solutions and all the stuff to then magically reveal it and then hope that the business, you know, grabs onto it. We did that, in my mind, that's a very high risk model. We says, let's start small, let's start like really easy stuff. That's going to help you do your job better. And most companies, they have that low lying fruit. It's just wait, it's piles of money just waiting to be picked up or piles of efficiency, whatever it is. But again, it gets back to the playbook and, and leveraging these communications. Again, back to communication. I'm going to go to that guy. I want to hear his story. And the thing is, you can't fake that you care. You've actually got to care because people can, they can sense that in a minute. It's like, okay, and, and these are muscles. These are things that you have to practice. You're probably not going to be good at them at first. I was. I was terrible, absolutely terrible at it. But you learn it over time and just through repetitions, just start the process, just get going. But the, the, the central thing when I'm training my young analysts, it's not about you, it's about them and how what we do helps them do their jobs better. Focus on that and it's virtually impossible to go wrong. Fantastic stuff. So my final question, what advice would you give for aspiring analytics leaders? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, uh, if you're not already, get, get front and center with the business. Talk to them 
understand. This sounds common sense. I, I understand that. I just, you know, I coach analytics leaders, you know, on building teams and kind of building these muscles. And it's a recurring theme I, I see over and over. And again, I say this, not that I'm better than anybody, but I'm saying it because I used to do the same thing. And the single thing that I found was not more technical skills, especially from a leadership, a management, and in the executive ranks, is essential to success. It's, it's non-negotiable. But if you're a leader kind of in that mid-tier, front and center with the business, talk to people, you know, have a lot of clarity on how what you are doing actually re- tangibly impacts the PNL right? How does this initiative drive revenue? How does this initiative reduce customer churn, cost, improve quality, whatever it is? These are basic things. These aren't things that you need a certification or an MBA to do, but they're the basics that I still see get missed a lot. And there's some, here's the thing, I still miss these sometimes, even though I'm sitting here talking about it. That's why when I miss it, I write it down. It's like, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. Um, but really, it's about kind of, you know, uh, as I said, just just listen, ask questions and listen. And there's a really big difference between hearing the words and actually processing what that person is saying and actually empathizing with it and understanding it. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a really big believer that we need to get out from behind our desks in front and center with the business at least a little bit, because you can't have empathy if you don't have a sense of where that individual is coming from. It's, it's exceedingly difficult. Perhaps some could do it, but I know for me, um, you know, I was anchored in the business for a lot of my career, so I created a very unique lens. I was in those meetings and where you're, you're listening to executives talk about these pain points and you start to hone over time. Like this is the thing, those muscles, that perspective, it takes years to develop. You can't just go take a course. You can't, you can't Google this stuff. You got to practice it. And and as I said before, I say it from the spirit of of what to expect. You're going to mess up. But understand that's part of the learning process. That's how you get better. But you got to practice. Just get out there. Try it. Talk to the business, right? Read a business book. Read a strategy book, whatever it may be. Understand what your organizational objectives are, right? And then have clarity on how you can help. Because the thing is, is once you develop that trust, I've observed this. It's it's a great feeling, and it's really it's it's where like magic happens, is when the business starts to trust you, they come to you for advice, they come to you for your opinion, they come to see how can data help us with this. That's I can't tell you how satisfying that feeling is, and it does take time. You know, it could take a year, take more than a year, but once you get to that point, that's where magic happens. That's where companies like start to dominate their markets and, and just transformational things happen, you know? Wise words from analytics strategy leader, Jason Krantz. Thanks so much for joining us. No, oh, thanks a ton for letting me ramble on and monologue there. But uh, yeah, hopefully we provided some nuggets to your community that was, uh, you know, useful. Um, and I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. 